Hi, I'm Tanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. And today we've got four of the authors of Hybrid Actors, Armed Groups and State Fragmentation in the Middle East, a new book out by the Century Foundation. And we've all gotten up just after dawn in Washington, D.C. to record a podcast about this research project and how it applies or how it helps us better understand what's happening right now in Iran, Iraq, and the wider region. I'm joined by Dina Esfandiari, Renad Mansour, and Michael Wahidhana. Thank you all for making uh, the track down here. Thanks for having us. Hello. To get us started, Renad, uh, could you explain to us what exactly this idea, this concept of hybrid actors is? Well, I think all of us as uh, researchers sort of going around the different countries in the Middle East, we were struggling to kind of understand uh, certain types of groups. Um, the, the kind of rubric, the frameworks that we were given where you have state actors and you have non-state actors. Uh, and, you know, this binary is how you should understand violence and, and armed groups. And we thought we saw things that were a bit sort of contrary to that or perhaps in the gray. And we so we kind of delved into what the gray is. And we came up with this term hybrid, which doesn't necessarily mean something new or different or doesn't assume a normal. But it's hybrid because Western policymakers who were oftentimes trying to speak to or, or, or trying to help understand the Middle East view it very much in that state and non-state. So a hybrid, uh, as defined in, in this concept, and this is an ongoing conversation, is, is, is that type of armed actor that you have in many countries where they kind of at times are part of the state, they kind of view themselves as protectors of the state at times, but at other times they're also outside of the state or parallel to the state. Um, and, and, and so that's kind of the bigger sort of concept behind it. Now, this speaks to another point, I think, which is important, and that is, again, the Western policymaker showing up in Baghdad or Beirut has a rubric of this is the organizational chart of this armed group, and it's a military organization. But that, again, stops uh, the policymaker or someone, the researcher, from getting a bigger picture of what these groups actually are. They're not only military groups with the commanders and all this rank and file, as you would see a traditional military. What they are are actually networks, networks that may be security networks, but also networks that are political networks, economic networks. Uh, you know, they run in politics, they have their own uh, businesses, their family networks, their social networks, their religious networks. So it's about complicating that binary, I think. And that's why we stuck to this word hybrid. Um, others may use the word parastatal, uh, but that was a bit, I think, a bit too academic uh, to, to yeah, I'm digest. Still, I'm still not sure what parastatal means. Yeah, exactly. We've published that word a few times. You, you were just talking a bit about their structure, but can you also help help define what, uh, what, if anything, sets apart the goals uh, of, of these hybrid actors, both with regards to the state itself and to their own uh, organizations and constituencies? So the goals, obviously, internally, like any other group, is to maximize power. Um, and power defined as be, you know, gaining legitimacy on the ground, building constituencies, but also becoming wealthy through economic enterprises and also becoming politically active, you know, gaining influence over state institutions and eventually almost becoming a state actor. Now, of course, that becomes problematic when that state has annoying things like rule of law and accountability. So they then also keep a foot out, which gives them more autonomy. Uh, and at times they can then kind of be in a sort of above the rule of law and parallel to the accountability that comes with these states. So 
again, I think the goals of these groups would then sort of more broadly be about maximizing power, maximizing capabilities, and maximizing legitimacy on the ground. Nadina, you've done a lot of work that's focused on state-to-state relations and and sort of regional diplomacy and and other vectors. Uh, how did uh, how did you come to the, this concept of hybrid actors, and how does that fit in with the sort of more traditional? Uh, I hate to say this, but Weberian uh, state uh, concept that that we often turn to as as in research or in policy. Well, for me, it was really important to understand it better because um, it helped me understand how Iran works. Because obviously, I study Iran in the region, and um, Iran is one of the countries that uh, has established this relationship of working with these hybrid actors in the region um, as effectively as in fact, more effectively than any other state in the region. And so um, to understand this concept is to understand how Iran works. It's to understand or to get a better idea into how um, Iran uh, conducts regional policy, why it conducts regional policy the way it does. Um, It's also a concept that captures the nuances in the way that Iran builds relationships with these actors in the region in a way that state, non-state doesn't necessarily capture. So... um, One of the things I get asked about a lot is, uh, you know, will we ever be able to break ties between Iran and Hezbollah, for example? And how are ties between Iran and Hezbollah similar to Iran and the Houthis in Yemen? Well, this concept helps you explain that actually those ties are very different. Um, The importance that Iran attributes to these groups are very different. And so I think this concept helps us understand Iran a little bit better. When we started uh, talking about these groups and trying to figure out what, uh, you know, the, 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 there was a lot of observable, observably important armed groups that seem different than say, uh, traditional pretenders to, to, to power that just wanted to be part of the state or wanted to share of the government. Uh, they also seem to somehow intuitively be different than groups that wanted to replace the state. Uh, and it took, I think some time for us, uh, to develop, uh, to develop a taxonomy that, that explained this, uh, and, one of the uh, one of the things that you all uh, came up with, sort of drawing drawing from the cases and then looking for an idea, uh, is this notion that that hybrid actors uh, hybrid actors actually uh, aren't anti-state, right? They're not trying to uh, they're not trying to overthrow or eliminate the state because it's a huge source of their support, but paradoxically, they're quite willing to sabotage the state when it serves their interests. Uh, and I want you to talk a little bit about that. And, and, and if you can, uh, how is that different than any other group? I mean, you know, a, t- a traditional mafia cartel, let's say, or, a, a, or an insurgency that's willing to take money from a government, but also sabotage the government. So if you look at sort of the literature on this, uh, you do have different types of actors. One, as you say, are mafias or criminals who don't really have a political agenda as such. You know, they, they're, they're rent-maximizing groups that want to make a lot of money and, and, and live in sort of that, that style of, of, of you know, business. Um, but they don't necessarily want to themselves, you know, become the state as such. Then you you know you mentioned insurgents. Insurgents are almost interested in destroying the current state and creating a new state. Um, and so groups like ISIS would, weren't necessarily saying we want to protect the Iraqi state or reform it. They were saying we want to end it and create our own Islamic state. Then you have warlords, 
And a lot of people who have done work in Africa would say, well, warlords are these local actors that are armed actors that kind of emerge. They're very interested in the local context. They're not really, they don't care what's happening in the capital or other parts of the country. They do their own little sort of um, governance strategies and programs. But then you have these actors that we're talking about, which unlike insurgents, they actually see themselves as protecting the state and they benefit from the state unlike mafias and criminal networks they 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 are political maybe they don't want to be on top all the time but they are necessarily and and, and importantly critically political and also unlike warlords they're not all the times local they actually want to expand throughout the country um, and we've seen that with several of these groups that that we look at in these case studies we'll be right back At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voice and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. I'm Lucy Muirhead, Chief Strategy Officer at the Century Foundation. We work to reduce inequality, foster opportunity, and promote peace and security, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. In the century ahead, we'll continue to prioritise rigour over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm joined by Dinas Fandiari, Renad Mansour, and Michael Wahid Hanna. We're talking about hybrid actors. Uh, and now I want to turn to you, Dina, to start applying this concept to the uh, to the region that we're struggling to, to keep a pace with. Uh, tell us how... Uh, how this hybrid actors concept fits into Iran's power structure and, and regional foreign policy and how it helps us uh, sort of a, clarify some things. So when the Islamic Republic was born in 1979, it faced a really difficult regional situation. It was isolated. Um, uh, the international community was trying to isolate it further. Um, and of course, Iran wasn't helping itself much then. Um, and as a result, it had to build ties with groups in the region, these hybrid actors that we refer to, in order for it to be able to establish um, some kind of regional foreign policy, which would allow it to increase its influence and sway in the region. Um, and as a result, it built ties with various groups uh, from Lebanon to Iraq to Syria to um, uh, and you know to Yemen, um, and and established varying degrees of relationship with these groups um, in order for it to uh, be able to, in some cases, call the shots. Uh, in terms of what was happening within these respective countries, and in other cases, to have just sway and influence over the decisions that these groups were making, um, to either make life difficult for uh, um, state actors in the country, um, or in order to kind of bring them into Iran's orbit. Um, I think Iran has been relatively successful in this endeavor. It's uh, it's massively increased its influence in the region. Um, it's began as an ideological um, endeavor and is now more of a pragmatic uh, foreign policy pursuit. Um, and uh, and Iran kind of plays with the levers uh, as much as it can, and it and it adapts to the context that it faces in each country. Um, and as such, has uh, has been very flexible and has done a pretty good job. On that point, I guess one of the things we did um, quite a bit of work on uh, in the course of writing this book um, on Iran was looking both 
added structural advantages, which I think we go into in, in a lot of detail because they matter um, a great deal, uh, but also the limitations. Um, you know, there is a sense of, um, you know, unmatched success. And of course, in, in comparative terms to the rest of the region and, and others who are trying to engage with sub-state organizations, Iran's record over many decades now is obviously um, is much better. Um, but one of the things, and maybe Dina, you can touch on this, is um, you know the limitations. I mean, this isn't this isn't a, a project that can be replicated at any setting, um, and that you know I think that's an an important insight um, because there I think there's a runaway narrative about uh, Iran um, as um, you know as an emerging new hegemon, and I, and I think that's probably wide of the mark. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. Um, there are uh, inherent limitations to the system because, of course, you're dealing with groups that have their own interests, that have their own agenda, whose support sometimes is very much um, local, whose grievances are very local. And as such, they don't necessarily always take well to being told what to do from Tehran. Um, so that for Tehran is a limitation. It's also a positive because it gives them a certain measure of deniability. So when the group does something that Iran wouldn't necessarily want them to do or doesn't buy into, then Tehran can turn around and say, hey, guys, it's not up to us. Sure, we have influence over this group, but um, it doesn't mean we get to call the shots all the time. So it's both a positive and a negative. There, there's a distinction we make between hybrid actors and classic proxies. And I think this gets gets at the the kind of dilemma you're you're talking about. Because some of these things that, that we're saying are true about classic proxies as well uh, as about hybrid actors. And what distinguishes hybrid actors is this level of autonomy uh, that they have and this level of agency that they have, which means they might work in concert with their host state, they might work in concert with their foreign patron state, but they also have the capability to do things that frustrate their patron or their host state, uh, and they and they regularly do. Uh, whereas a classic proxy would find itself immediately shut down if it departed from the agenda set forth uh, to it by its paymaster. And this, I think, speaks to something Renaud mentioned, which is the simplistic binaries of Western policymakers where they're, uh, the, they're constantly uh, looking for an address, so to speak, looking for someone, one person that they go to, go to and say, shut down this group, make this group stop doing this. And by design, hybrid actors cannot be controlled that way. Uh, yeah, let's give an example of that, a concrete example of that. So um, Iran's relationship with the Houthis, for example, is, uh, is, is a little bit more nuanced than it's been reported in the past, or at least it was at the, at the outset of the war in Yemen. Um, their ties uh, were, they, were, they had religious ties, political ties. Um, a lot of the weapons that the Houthis were drawing on were weapons that were already present in Yemen, so they weren't necessarily coming from Iran. Um, but they were they were relatively close. And when the Houthis um, announced that they were going to go into Sana'a, uh, Tehran told them, don't do it. It's a mistake. Um, and in fact, U.S. intelligence uh, confirmed this point. The Houthis still went ahead and did it uh, to Iran's great dismay. And this started um, the, the war that they're now in. Now, of course, the war has brought the two closer together. Um, but the Houthis remain a useful actor for Iran. Um, after the, I believe it was after the Saudi Aramco attacks a few weeks ago, um, the Houthis made an announcement that they would stop striking at Saudi Arabia temporarily. And the Iranians, um, this was right when the Iranians were visiting the U.S., I think, um, uh, 
during the General Assembly or right after the UN General Assembly, they were announcing that it was thanks to them, thanks to Tehran and its convincing of the Houthis that um, that they had made this announcement they weren't going to strike uh, Saudi Arabia. So they're, they're a useful actor. They help make Iran look good at times, um, but they're also uh, a bit of a pain. Can you talk a little bit, Renat, about Iraq right now and the, the complicated... Uh uh, maybe an attempted transition that's underway and how, how hybrid actors factor in there. Yeah. Can I make two points before answering your question that have just come to my mind? And I promise 22, I'll, I'll, as many I'll as answer you your question at some point. Um, <laughs> so there's two kind of interesting, uh, of many conclusions, but two that are from the Iraq example give you a, a different way of viewing the conflict. One, if we look at these actors as hybridity, then you actually sort of have a different framework to understand allies and non-allies because oftentimes a group like Al-Hajj al-Sha'bi, the popular mobilization units, are considered to be the enemy, right? And they're militias and the enemy, all of this. But a group like the KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, is an ally uh, and we should continue to support them. Fundamentally, they're both hybrid actors. Fundamentally, they're both not interested in completely coming into any kind of accountability system or any kind of rule of law. But one is an ally and one is an enemy. So if you look at- You're talking about from from a Western- From from the US perspective, perspective, right? right? And yeah, that's why, I mean, what we're doing here is trying to kind of uh, complicate and problematize, as, as some would say, uh, these these groups. So there, if, if, if you have an agenda to rebuild states, if fundamentally the core- reason for groups like ISIS and other conflict rising is the kind of breakdown of that unitary state, then these both these actors both present a problem to that. But one is an ally and one is an enemy. So using this different framework gives you a different sense of what your ultimate strategy is and how different tactics may actually complicate and perhaps answers why the US and others keep getting it wrong. And on the second point of accountability, which is really important, the hybridity allows them to escape accountability. The obvious way is because they can just say whenever they want, we're not part of the state, right? But another way, and you're seeing this in Iraq, and this will answer your question, what's happening now. Who is shooting the protesters? There's not one group. There's not one identifiable chain of command, rank and file. It's this sort of intentionally created confusing shades of violence of all these different hybrid groups designed in a way so that nobody ultimately can be held accountable. And so what the thing that we're saying- Which benefits the state as well. Which benefits, I mean, not depends what you mean by the state, not the state as a contract, but the current government, yes. Of course, it doesn't benefit what the ideal Iraqi state should be, but what what it benefits is this regime. And what you're seeing is the coalescence of all these hybrid actors together to protect this system. So what's important in this kind of research is to show that one of the biggest advantages that hybrid actors have is their ability to escape accountability. And so from a Western perspective, from an American perspective, rather than going around on this kind of hopeless SSR, security sector reform idea, as you mentioned, Weber, to bring all these groups together, that integration isn't the policy. The policy is how do you make these groups more accountable? Because across the region, and what we're seeing in Iraq is over 300 dead, reportedly 15,000 injured by a host of actors, many of which are hybrid. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. 
Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benaim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, we're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Gambanis. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm with Dina Spandiari, Renad Mansour, and Michael Wahid Hanna. We're talking about hybrid actors. Uh, to follow, to, to pick up on what you, you just said before the break, Renad, uh, about accountability um, and, and your sort of explanation of how hybrids are invested in the system, I think that's a great way of putting it because it explains why, I mean, for example, people were surprised in Lebanon that Hezbollah uh, was defending their supposed arch rival Rafi, uh, Rafi Hariri, sorry, Saad Hariri uh, in, in, in the prime ministry. And we, what we had was this whole group of, of traditional warlords and hybrid actors banding together uh, uh, to defend this system. And it became very clear in, in the face of, of protest that what they were all invested in was a certain kind of system that enabled both the, the actors who were fully within the state and those who were, who were fully hybrid to thrive. And that was much more important to them than the resistance or the neoliberal project or their vastly different uh, other, other policy aims. Uh, and, not to make too much of a, of a not, not to equate Iraq's case with Lebanon's case, but I think that is a huge parallel and y- using uh, or sort of elaborating this hybrid concept makes this thing that otherwise wouldn't make sense. I mean, why would the prime minister and the, and some of the Kurds and some of these really shadowy Shia militias and then some of these very mainstream Shia parties, why would they all be able to agree uh, on this really unhealthy system uh, uh, unless one one sees that that it benefits all of them and that the hybrids are the ones who are most able to to protect it. So, I mean, you, you can respond to that. Um, and I'm also interested in why is it that the hybrids are so much more effective uh, uh, when it actually comes to the dirty work or the heavy lifting of protecting a regime or a system uh, than you know, either the traditional proxies or state institutions, uh, which are, are much better resourced? Well, I think they, they have best of both worlds. So when it's beneficial, they can be a state actor. When, you know, the, especially in a country like Iraq, but also Lebanon, where the state is wealthy, they can become quite wealthy from gaining ministries, from getting into politics, from influencing business. Um, there's also a sense of legitimacy that comes with being a state actor, which is important. None of them want to be known as militias. They all want to be seen as we are part of the state. We are supporting the state. So they get that world. But also, as I mentioned, it's also for many of them annoying if they have to come under the rule of law. If they have to, you know, if they have to be held accountable for corruption, for anything that you would have in many other states. And so at that point, they can then escape that. Rhetorically, don't most of them say that they wholeheartedly support the rule of law, which does distinguish them from... from That's a rhetorical question, rhetorically. But but, but it does make them different from some, some... other armed groups and militias that that overtly say we're outside the umbrella of law. And that's why 
when we talk about the success of hybridity and hybrid actors, it's because they do just that. They can be a state actor. They can. There's a lot of people in these countries who support these actors, who genuinely buy into their narratives. And and you know these are not the protesters. But so that's what it is. So it's 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 this idea that they can do in and out at the same time of the state. And also they're supported more by foreigners and, and other foreign governments as well because it's they're quick they're efficient you don't have to go through a massive state bureaucracy and if you have either you know we talked about iran but if you look at the u.s and other countries oftentimes this middle east strategy is reacting to a crisis and that's not really a strategy and when you react to a crisis do you go to the army that is fleeing isis or do you go and work with other groups that you can more easily engage with and, and effectively for the short term? But in, obviously in the long term, you're creating the same problem. Right. And, and, you know, we I think we've really studiously tried to move away from this sort of, you know, good good versus bad framework for, for armed groups. And we've sort of started with the assumption that these groups which are powerful and part of a system and are, are integral to it and are there instead of, of, of approaching them wishfully and saying, how can we get rid of these groups we don't like and strengthen the ones we do, uh, try to describe the, the actual real relationship of power and understand how, how it works. Um, I want us to shift our perspective a little bit for a minute to what it looks like from the perspective of these protesters um, in, in the th three countries we focused on or three of the four countries we focused on most, uh, Iran, uh, Iraq, and, and Lebanon. Um, right now, there's huge uh, or, or very dynamic popular movements that are demanding uh, huge changes in governance. Uh, and one of their targets are these hybrid actors. Uh, and it's clear to me anyway, that a lot of the people involved in these protests are also supporters of and constituents of these hybrid actors. Um, and further complicating it is something that, that you've both mentioned, which is these hybrid actors uh, in some cases have been really pivotal in transformational ways that are viewed as positive. Uh, I mean, in, in Lebanon's case, Hezbollah uh, is, is credited, I think, correctly with ending Israeli occupation of, of a huge amount of the country's territory. In Iraq, these hybrid actors were the reason why ISIS was defeated. Um, uh, I'm not sure how what, what the sort of ambivalence would be in Iran uh, on, on this score. But given, given that framework, how would uh, a, an Iraqi let's say, or an Iranian who's interested in accountability and better governance view these hybrid actors and what would a solution look like for them uh, in terms of accountability or integration or, or some change from the current status quo? You guys don't have to fight over who goes first. I'm going to want to hear from both of you. I feel like I've... Uh... I've, I've, I've talked a lot, but I mean, from the perspective of an Iraqi, uh, good, saying good stuff, good, good and bad. <laughs> so I think using this, this sort of framework of hybridity kind of gets rid of some of the contradictions that you see, especially in U.S. policy in the region. Right. So when you start saying we want to support state building by looking at hybrid actors as a whole, as a problem to the state building, that's not saying we are against the Shia and with the Kurds. And you move away from identity based arguments, you move away from political almost arguments, par political parties, and you say it, it's closer to the bigger strategy. Now, from the perspective of an Iraqi protester, their biggest concern is this array of actors, hybrid, state, non-state, all of which are using violence against them. So what they want immediately is for there to be accountability. And it's very simple. Who made the order to kill? 
who is making the orders to use tear gas canisters to not just shoot in the air, but to shoot at their heads, right? And if that's if it's, if the government until now is unable to say who is accountable, and the government is accountable because it's the, it's the government's watch. So the protesters immediately want accountability, but in the long term, they're not naive. They've lived, you know, I mean, they know how the region works. It's hard for that Weberian sort of single military structure to exist as it does. They know there's going to be multiple structures. Well, but, the Iraqi army was the thing that collapsed in the face of ISIS. And yes. it was the, 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 yeah. the and, hybrids and, and there that was were support able to from it. And these hybrids at different times gain a lot of legitimacy and they gain a lot of support in, in, in their defense and protecting the system. But I think what the Iraqis want now, and I think this is the key, not to stress too much the legal side, but they want to know that, okay, there are these hybrid actors, but when they commit crimes, is there a body is there a judiciary that can hold them to account? When they're sort of threatening civil society activists, when they're intimidating, when they're jailing, when they're killing, is there a body that can hold them to account? So it's not to get rid of them, but there needs to be more of a legal process against them. Well, and, and I think one thing we should add is that the, these, these groups aren't, you know, immediately formed as hybrids, right? In the case of Hezbollah, this is like a three-decade process. Uh, you, don't, you don't become a hybrid Overnight, I mean, you couldn't have talked about the Hashd shabi as a hybrid actor um, until very recently. Um, you know, these this is a kind of incremental, organic, and somewhat accidental process that has exploited the the vacuum uh, of governance in the region. Um, but it's something that takes time. You know, you can you can form a proxy group very quickly. Perhaps you can send arms to a group. Um, you can't create a hybrid overnight. I mean, this is something that requires, as Renat has mentioned, it requires constituency building. Uh, it requires real uh, military capacity, major networks, um, and and that political push where you are both in and out of government. And so, we should always remember that this is this is something that's taken decades, really, to come into existence. From the perspective of uh, Iranian protesters, though, things are a little bit different. You kind of you're looking at the you're looking at the issue from the other side of the of the coin, um, and uh, Iran's relationship with hybrid actors, proxies in the region, um, has been the cause of a great deal of contention within Iran for a little while now. The system more or less agrees that this is a good um, uh, a good approach to regional foreign policy. But Iranians, the Iranian public, has at, quite often, in fact, um, been up in arms about, you know, why is it that so much money, for example, is being sent abroad at a time where Iran is being squeezed? So this was a particular, uh, this was an issue particularly under the last wave of sanctions before um, the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. And today it's coming up again. Um, the fear is that, you know, Iran isn't doing well economically. It's, it's poor. Iranians are really feeling the pinch. Um, and so they don't understand why it is that that money is going to Hezbollah and money is going to Iraq. And for them, um, that kind of activity makes sense when Iran is under threat. And so, for example, when you had ISIS so close to the Iranian border, suddenly Iran's relationship with the Hashid in Iraq made sense and nobody was really questioning it. Today, though, Iran seems to be more or less safe. There isn't an imminent threat on its borders. Um, and so once again, you have this issue of why is money going outside when it should be spent um, in Iran? And so they're looking at the problem from this side. The, uh, another important thing to, to note is, you know, we, I often hear people talking about 
speculating about why Iran is so good at working with hybrids when, when you know, everyone else uh, isn't. And there's this sort of implication that Iran is comfortable with uh, being a spoiler and with eroded states that are unstable or have vacuums. Uh, and you don't even have to look far back in history to see that every meddling international and regional power is comfortable creating vacuums and destabilizing state structures sometimes, if not all the time. The U.S. has done it. Israel's done it. The Gulf Arab monarchies have done it. So it's not some unique Iranian willingness to live with instability and, and chaos. It's just that at this particular juncture, its hybrids have done well, uh, and these other parties' hybrids have not. Um, Michael touched on on one of the reasons why you know share, shared ideology and, and projects. But you know, there, if we were doing this volume and podcast 25 years ago, we'd be talking about uh, you know we'd be talking about the Lebanese forces and and Amal and uh, Israeli hybrids uh, in Lebanon and and so on. Uh, so it's not somehow a a, a an Iranian or Shia uh, phenomenon, and and I, and I believe it's not even a, a Middle East North Africa phenomenon. We're looking at it here because these are the places where widespread conflict and weak states have been very fertile ground for for hybrids. Uh, but I think the concept would apply in in uh, uh, conflicts like Colombia, uh, other places where you have similar conditions, and that's why um, I, I think it's very helpful. Well, and on concept. that point, very quickly. Uh, we also, and we mentioned this in the book several times, but we have many examples of Iranian failure, right? I mean, there are specific conditions and structural advantages that allow for, yes, pragmatic assertions of, of, uh, of power in the region, but that rely on ideological bonds. And where those ideological bonds are lacking, Iran's track record doesn't look much different than that of Saudi Arabia or any other um, any other. Uh, sponsor in the region. And I, and that's, you know, that's notable. It's important. Thank you all for coming on the TCF World podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. We've been listening to Dina Svandiari uh, a lot uh, from Renad Mansour and Michael Wahid Hanna. Uh, thank you all for your great insights and, and uh, for your fantastic work as authors of Hybrid Actors, Armed Groups and State Fragmentation in the Middle East, a Century Foundation book, which you can order online at our website, tcf.org. And uh, thanks for listening. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook.